Hello, and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. How seriously should we take the growing trend of state-backed attacks in cyberspace? And how likely are we to face all-out cyber war? State actors account for a growing percentage of cyber attacks, and both politicians and researchers worry that these could lead to an all-out conflict in cyberspace, the Cyber Pearl Harbor, or even Cybergeddon. At the same time, nation-states are using the internet, in the broader sense, as a lever of influence through disinformation, fake news, and of course, conventional diplomacy. The grey zone between peace and war is a fertile ground for state activities. In this Insights interview, I met David Carroll, Managing Director at Nominet Cyber, which runs the protective DNS system for the UK government, among others, and asked him whether some of the commentators' worst fears could come true. Well, I think we've known for some time that the, the threat that is, is growing fast is the nation-state threat. And indeed, uh, the original founders of what was known as the Loft, uh, who famously in, uh, in the 1990s hosted the first congressional Senate hearing on, on cybersecurity to alert Congress to the dangers of building the economy on top of the internet. Um, they met on the 20th anniversary of that first congressional hearing and one of the one of the things that they 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 raised was the growth in the nation state threat, and indeed we've heard this before from from Kieran Martin in his tenure as uh, the National Cybersecurity Centre, and, and and other folks uh, within the the defence establishment and the security world, um, saying that there were I'm paraphrasing new certainties in life, death taxes, and and a, a foreign power on your network. That really is. The transformation that's happened over the last 20 years, the scaling of the nation state threat uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and that really is, is focusing minds now, as we've seen with, with recent attacks, uh, the solar winds and the Microsoft attacks in the United States. So how seriously should we take these attacks? And in fact, why should we take them seriously? Why do they matter to enterprises more generally rather than the security and defense establishment specifically i think we should take them very seriously because as as business leaders or organized leaders of organizations we have a responsibility to our stakeholders to run the business responsibly or the organization uh, and and that this is the world that we that we live in the recent attacks against solarwinds and microsoft illustrate the types of attacks that we're now seeing, which are some are being characterized as supply chain attacks, where adversaries will, will attack one organization in order to attack, attack many. And it's not enough to ignore that operating environment in the same way that we wouldn't we wouldn't ignore health and safety. Um, we have a responsibility to take cybersecurity seriously and to, and to recognize that it has the potential to be material in, in, in terms of its impact, be that share price, be it uh, market standing and, and competitive uh, position. 
uh, or just the viability of day-to-day operations. Uh, we've seen some, some very uh, large-scale attacks against uh, the enterprise customer, and they've had, you know, they've had very significant impacts upon those organizations. So it's not something that can be just ignored. And um, Alex Stamos, who previously was chief security officer at Facebook, um, he, he characterized it thus when he said, as far as he was concerned, within the Fortune, uh, Fortune 500 companies, there were, the, there were the top 20 who were going to survive. And then there were, there were a bunch of others who were trailing behind them who, who could expect if they didn't take the cybersecurity threat seriously and didn't invest, that they could expect to go out of business. It was, in his mind, as serious as that. I think it's, uh, it's overstating it slightly to expect businesses to go out of business on that scale. But nonetheless, I think the point he makes is, 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 is a valid one in that the investments that businesses make into cybersecurity will, to a large extent, determine how well they are able to compete in this, in this transformed landscape. And at the same time, you can't really untangle the connections between the private sector and government because most of the critical national infrastructure, at least in the UK and the US, is in private hands. So if private industry doesn't protect itself, potentially the whole economy is at risk. Exactly right. Um, government operates relatively little critical national infrastructure. Most of a nation's critical national infrastructure is operated by the private sector. And so, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping uh, uh, essential services running, preventing societal breakdown, this is largely in the hands of the private sector. So it's, we, we, I suppose we have as citizens as well as, 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 as business stakeholders, we, we have an obligation to take this seriously. What, though, lies behind these attacks? And in a recent episode, we had the analysts talking about the fact that they were seeing attacks, for example, on uh, COVID vaccination supply chains, medical R&D, and potentially against things like COVID status apps, which is a high stakes game to play for a nation state to potentially disrupt vaccinations in a rival nation or disrupt the ability of that rival nation to reopen an economy by focusing on those specific tools that they might be relying on to do so? I think this goes to the heart of, of the matter in terms of, you know, we ask ourselves, why is it that we're seeing the rise of the nation state threat? I think what has crept up on us is a transformation of how nations compete. We're moving away from a global com- competition centered around bombs and bullets. There was a book written in 1909 by a, a chap called Norman Ungel who wrote a book called The The Great Illusion. The subtext is it's a a study of the relationship between military power and national advantage. And a full four or five years before the start of the First World War, Angel put forward the idea that war offers diminishing returns and that that trend will continue. And it's a text that gets revisited uh, occasionally by academics looking at this return on investment in, in war as, as, as part of the, the global competition. I think there's something in that. I think our concepts of rivalry are, are being transformed at a, a rate of knots faster than we'd, we'd previously given credence. 
We tend to think of kinetic military action as the policy option. But actually, if we look at uh, emerging nations, emerging nations with aspirations of being global powers, they take a much broader view of the global competition. And military activity is just one of the policy options available. And there's the usual suspects of economics and financial aspects, but then there's industrial strategy and there's political strategy, there's influence and operations. And I think we're in the we're in the foothills of our understanding of how technology is transforming our our basic concepts of power and geopolitics. Sure, there are other drivers, you know, there are other more base drivers. Cyberspace presents opportunities for humans, for malfeasance, to make money, to do all sorts of stuff. And it creates opportunities for very small players uh, that are not considered to be conventional military powers, but it, it, it creates an opportunity for those nations to level the playing field to a degree. Then there's the proliferation of, of cyber weapons, uh, which is which is a real problem. So, you know, this mushrooming of the nation state threat, I think is perhaps much more profound than we realize. And it's not, it's not restricted to the world of cybersecurity. It's a transformation of, of the global competition itself. And I think, I think we need to acknowledge that if we're going to move forward with, with a lot of the stuff in cyberspace. So in fact, our reliance on data and information has increased the space that sits below the area of overt conflict. So the grey zone is actually widening because groups can get into that space at a much lower cost than if they wanted to, if you go back to the 1960s, engage in irregular warfare or an insurgency. Absolutely. The barriers to entry, as we tend to call them in business, for cyber warfare are incredibly low. Uh, in fact, the whole, the whole industry in, in terms of malfeasance has been very quick to adapt and to offer its services as a, as a true service. So crime as a service is a good example of that, where all of the bits and pieces that are required for conducting offensive cybersecurity, cyber operations can be obtained via the internet on a pay-by-the-minute uh, you know, basis. So whilst that, that's not necessarily related to, to, to nation-state, it's a, it's a good indicator of how, the, uh, how accessible the, these kinds of tools and techniques are to people within nation-states and without. And, and of course, you then enter a very interesting area, that grey area between who actually is is the threat actor that you're dealing with. Is it a nation state? Is it a proxy? Or is it genuinely somebody, you know, who's independent and, you know, not really anything to do with a nation state, but perhaps, uh, you know, somebody with a with a global agenda, not necessarily linked to a country. And we're seeing temporary and shifting alliances as well. So it might suit a nation state to support or allow uh, a cyber attack by a group at one point and then potentially remove support for that group or move on to another at some point in the future. But if we accept that we are in this grey zone below the level of overt conflict and cyber tools, cyber threats sit within that, what's the risk that a state using these tools might spill over into something more overt? So what some of the academics are describing as cyber warfare? And how would we know when that line's being crossed? That's a very grey area indeed. You have to go back to our original definitions of what constitutes warfare in order to determine whether actions in cyberspace are themselves warfare. But unfortunately, there's very little agreement on what actually constitutes war. 
from Clausewitz to Keegan, most of our traditional definitions of war uh, characterize war by violence, force, and, you know, kind of war that you, you understood when you saw it. Um, and we've been very ill-equipped from a legal and academic standpoint to, to define cyber war because we have such poorly defined definitions of war. Uh, the Talon Manual uh, is probably the best thing that we've got currently in terms of how we translate the, the modern world of, of geopolitics and international relations and make them pertinent to, to cyberspace. And, and Talon defines warlike activities as those that create harm to people and, and infrastructure that would be equivalent to the use of force. It's a very grey area and nation states are very good at staying below the threshold above which there would be universal acknowledgement that a war, uh, you know, an activity was, was warlike. If I was to give you an example of that, if you consider there was a, in, I think, 2016, there was a German blast furnace uh, destroyed by a cyber attack. And it's unattributed, this cyber attack. I dare say somebody somewhere knows what happened. But it, it, it allegedly happened uh, against a Tyson Krupp uh, facility in, in, in Germany, in the Ruhr Valley, and involved the destruction of, of a facility, a, a blast furnace and you know, a typical blast furnace can produce millions of tons of steel per annum. Obviously, a lot of a lot of money tied up in that facility. But you know, if we cast our minds back to the 1940s, you know, the Battle of the Ruhr in in 1943 was a, a, a joint U.S. Air Force and and Royal Air Force campaign of bombing against German steel production in in the Ruhr Valley. If you look at that cyber attack through the lens of uh, should we say, malfeasance conducted by uh, a, a lone wolf hacker, although I think that's unlikely in this instance, given that whoever did this attack clearly had quite sophisticated knowledge of industrial control systems. But if it was the case that that, that hacker's intent was mischief or, or sabotage, uh, it would not be construed as an act of war. And yet, if our intent was to significantly degrade German steel production as a prelude to a conflict or perhaps as part of a conflict, then at that point, that, that attack, which is a very, uh, you know, would be identical at a technical level, um, stops being an act of sabotage or, 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 or mischief. Uh, and then, you know, in theory becomes an act of war, but there's no, there's no satisfactory legal definition that everybody accepts to to put arms around that that kind of dilemma i think there does appear to be a, a, a almost a de facto norm in place whereby nation states have refrained from you know going at each other's infrastructures in a way that would be recognizable as war but there are many attacks that have occurred that indicate that certain countries with the, the capability, any time that they did want to, they could inflict that kind of damage upon each other's nations, which is a worry. And we're starting to talk then about having to understand not just the attribution, but also the motivation of the attacker, which is a hugely complex area. But with that in mind, do we then need some rules of war in the way that we have the Geneva Convention and we have the convention that, for example, we don't attack, or at least knowingly attack, medical facilities? Does something like that need to carry over to the internet so that there are limits 
And as the conflict escalates, at least the civilian population has some degree of protection from potentially a catastrophe. I think it would be uh, a noble aspiration uh, to think that we could get to some kind of uh, cyber Geneva Convention. But of course, it is it is very problematic because we tend to hear about the attacks that are being made against us here in the West. And we have those same capabilities ourselves and we will... Uh, almost certainly be conducting our own cyber operations. And so there's this there's this conundrum that we find ourselves in, in that if we were to attempt to uh, regulate behavior globally, uh, that that could be prejudicial to our, to our own security. And unlike nuclear weapons in the uh, in, in post uh, Second World War era, um, it's very difficult to monitor and ratify agreements in cyberspace uh, because a lot of the time, you know, we have no visibility of attacks. The solar winds attack being a, a good a good case in hand that was probably probably in motion for months, if not years. Whereas, you know, in the in the in the, the post-war period, we could we could have agreements about nuclear capability and then we could we could monitor those we could ratify them you know they were visible from space with cybersecurity no such uh, infrastructures exist it's very difficult to uh, create any kind of situational awareness in cyberspace and so the agreements themselves are, are not built on firm foundations i think the argument would run that well if we were to uh, keep our end of the bargain we would have no guarantee that an adversary would be keeping their end of the bargain. So I, I think in principle, yeah, I mean, the example that you choose of, of you know, no attacks against, uh, you know, uh, say a medical facility, that is worthy of exploration and discussion, but I, I wouldn't underestimate just how problematic that would be to enforce in practical terms, particularly then when you consider that one of the characteristics of the internet and, and cyber warfare is that, it's pretty unpredictable, as we've seen with with certain attacks. Um, once those attacks are underway, um, it's pretty easy to invoke the law of unintended consequences. At which point, um, who gets hit is largely due to what software they're running and how diligent they are with their patching regime, for example, rather than whether they're a hospital or whether they are what others might determine to be a perfectly legitimate target. Indeed, we saw exactly that with WannaCry, where hospitals were not the intended target, as far as we know, but they, they suffered as a consequence of the infrastructure that they were operating on. So is an accidental incident likely to lead to a wider conflict? And how do we potentially de-escalate such situations? I think of, of the three scenarios that, 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 I, that I turned my mind to uh, when when asking myself the question is you know is are we are we sleepwalking into some kind of cyber calamity the prospect of some calamitous accident is the, is the most likely uh, to occur and and of those three you know i think you you, you could characterize what are the what are the opportunities for full scale cyber warfare or some kind of calamity and the first one would be an attack against the internet I think 20 years ago, that was much more likely than it is today, or much more technically feasible than it is today. And for as long as we're all running on the same internet, I think an attack against the internet would be an attack against us all, including those doing the attacking. So, so I think an attack against the internet is unlikely. As I said earlier, I think there's a, 
there appears to be a de facto norm emerging between the large cyber powers where they are showing a degree of restraint and not attacking each other's infrastructures, but they are doing fairly extensive reconnaissance and persistence operations against each other's networks. The, the scenario that that is perhaps most concerning is is that of that of an accident but in terms of the you know the capacity for that to spill over into some kind of cyber conflict uh, so or, or some real world conflict i think i think that's unlikely provided that the nation states with the ability to attribute attacks and, and attribution is difficult but there are should we say the great cyber powers out there who 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 can quite quickly ascertain who did what to whom and when uh, and i think i think communication it will be will be key in the event of uh, some kind of cyber calamity that that you know if had had one cry being materially worse to the extent that uh, infrastructures were being taken down in a way that was likely to result in part or in full to some kind of societal uh, you know breakdown it's unlikely that that would then result, as, as we sometimes hear politicians say, in some kind of kinetic response. Uh, you know, if they attack our networks, we'll nuke them, uh, was, was one of the debates that was uh, doing the rounds under the last presidency. That is unlikely. And I think it's unlikely because um, it would be difficult to, to sell politically, you know, in response to a cyber attack, uh, you know, kinetic action against an adversary. I think that it's it's hard to foresee um, that being a viable policy option in terms of actions in cyberspace spilling out into into some kind of expanded form of conflict. I think that's I think that's unlikely. I think what you could see, however, is some kind of tit for tat uh, retaliatory behaviours in cyberspace in response to attacks against infrastructure. And certainly, because if you look at question of deterrence and retaliation building up a cyber capability is as much a deterrence as anything else because that that is where it might end up isn't it thinking about how that might actually play out in practice uh, we've seen we've seen evidence that cyber tools can be used to achieve a physical effect I see what you're saying. So perhaps the public, at least in the West, is not ready for a scenario where there would be a military response to a pure cyber attack. But should that lead to a physical degradation of infrastructure, so you know, an exploding nuclear power plant could be a worst case scenario there, or a wiping out of the system so that healthcare could no longer operate, at that point, might we change our view and say, actually, because there has been a physical effect, maybe not a kinetic effect, but a physical effect to this cyber attack, there needs to be some form of physical response, which might stop short of military, it could be diplomatic, it could be trade, but still more of a physical response. Yes, I, I don't think you could rule it out. And the example I have heard given is is, is um, what, what was described as an act of herbicide, um, where an attack was made against um, a city, for example, let's, you know, let's not name cities, but, you know, a large city. Um, and Lloyds of London and the University of Cambridge did some modelling uh, in 2015 of an attack against the US energy grid. Uh, and they took out a relatively modest amount of, of 
energy production and distribution in the uh, on the eastern seaboard of the United States and modeled how that would you know from an insurance perspective what the costs would be which which you know at the bottom end of of, of cost were about a I think it was 250 billion dollars worth of damage up to you know more extreme scenarios in excess of a trillion dollars uh, and if you countenance the the possibility of such an attack. And there are examples of attacks against power grids in Ukraine in 2015 and 2016, linked to military campaigns that had a kinetic aspect to them. Um, But I suppose it goes to show that such attacks are possible. And if you then play that out against our hypothetical city and take out its means of energy production to the extent that societal breakdown occurs. That is to say, essential services can't be operated, transport can't be operated, hospitals have to close, uh, financial markets are severely disrupted, uh, and ultimately leading to uh, a breakdown of law and order and potentially political instability. Sounds like a bit of a doomsday scenario, but but, but, these things things theoretically are possible. and, And there are examples of each little each little piece of the jigsaw there are very good examples of those kinds of attacks happening then it's hard to envisage there not being some kind of kinetic response or physical response if that's what you want to call it uh, even if there's no there's no precedent uh, for it currently is this the cybergeddon scenario that some academics talk about well there's a there's a long there's a long line of of cyber doomsayers from the loft uh, onwards uh, through Leon Panetta's uh, Cyber Pearl Harbor, and, and more recently uh, Yuval Noah Harari, uh, writing in in the Financial Times in February of this year, uh, who said that uh, technology had had demonstrated our ability to respond to and manage a pandemic in ways that had been unavailable to to previous generations, but that he feared that those very technologies. Uh, and our dependence upon them uh, are likely to be at the heart of our next pandemic. Uh, he uses the term loosely. He, he worries that we're walk, wandering into some kind of uh, cybergeddon scenario, uh, as, as you say. Um, and, and and these things are possible, um, but one would hope that that degree of reciprocity would d- deter uh, anybody from from initiating those kinds of uh, activities. I suppose what I, you know, what I fear uh, is is anything that would upset that that uneasy and and admittedly imperfect balance of power. So a bifurcated internet, for example, if in ten or twenty years we we move to a world whereby there is no one internet anymore, we have two or or more internets that are uh, run along very different lines and are not necessarily mutually dependent for their existence. You know, one could be attacked and the other may, may not be. That, that would be a concern. And, and I know it's something that, that is being discussed currently. There's certainly some parallels to how this has been looked at during, the, or how it was looked at during the Cold War and how it's been looked at since with the concepts of mutually assured destruction, but also, you know, the controversy that surrounded uh, the move towards missile defence systems, submarine-based launches and other things that might create a situation where you could survive a first strike. So a bifurcated internet would replicate that because 
a country could potentially survive a first strike and continue to operate or launch a first strike onto its adversary's internet without the risk of taking out its own infrastructure. Is that what would worry you? It is. Um, I think we we always tend to reach for the the maximum um, the maximum catastrophe scenarios. Uh, you know, Leon Panetta and his cyber Pearl Harbor. Um, I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the the fact that the effects could be much more subtle and much more, uh, in some respects, in, in, in invidious. In, in that we may find ourselves in a position where, if there is a bifurcated internet. The other internet, let's just say, if it's run by China and Russia, is not run along open Californian lines, as Kieran Martin calls it, uh, and makes significant sacrifices in terms of the personal freedoms and privacy and and rights of free speech of, of the citizens of those nations. And, and of course, a concern is that we feel in the West that in order to compete, in that environment, we also have to have a less neutral internet, uh, and that could put our own, uh, the, you know, our own civil liberties and and the freedoms that we have enjoyed since the end of the Second World War, uh, you know, into into threat. So I think that the effects may be much more subtle uh, than than perhaps we we realise. Our response to it, uh, if if that if if a bifurcated internet is is what comes to pass. Um, will be will will be an interesting debate to to watch unfold uh, as we as we decide how it is that we want to react to that kind of world. With the internet as it stands, though, what can be done to mitigate or prevent escalation so that potentially either a deliberate or an accidental cyber incident doesn't trigger a wider nation state or international response, which may very quickly spiral out of control. So I think the long-term solution we're, we're probably still decades away from. Um, many technologists believe that we will eventually solve the problem uh, with software. We'll we'll manage to build much, much safer, much more reliable and secure infrastructures. But we're a long way away from that. And in the interim period, I personally would like to see more direction and more, more active measures from, from government. And, and I think the UK has been world leading in this regard with the, the NCSC Active Cyber Defence Programme, which has sought to protect the majority from the majority of threats, the majority of the time. I'm, I'm paraphrasing their, their, uh, their vision. But, you know, we tend to, we tend to not like to interfere in markets and, and we tend to want to allow markets to take care of of these kinds of problems. And I think the problem is that we've viewed it as a business problem, just like compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley or health and safety. Uh, And this is is a much bigger problem. It transcends so much. It's not something that can be left to the market alone. So I think we require greater intervention from government as we are starting to see uh, in, in a lot of countries where they are brigading their cyber resources and the NCF, the uh, the UK National Cyber Force is a good example of that, as is the NCSC. And those organisations doing more to protect society as a whole from the centre, uh, rather than just this expectation that the market will somehow take care of it with whizzy products and clever services. So I think we've got to do more to protect more of our infrastructure from the centre. And, and, and that will 
that will require us to win certain uh, arguments about uh, you know, intervention in those markets, about privacy, about use of technology, about, you know, so many things that, that we'll, we'll have to get comfortable with as a, as, a, as a public debate in the interests of being able to compete in this world where, um, you know, the, the internet presents so much opportunities for progress, but at the same time brings with it unprecedented vulnerabilities uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and recognise that, you know, Wars aren't being fought anymore with bombs and bullets. They're being fought with bits and bites, and 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 it's not war anymore. It's a kind of geo, geopolitical and economic competition, of which war fighting is just one tiny piece. So there are, you know, there are no silver bullets. There's nothing that we can do to 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 make this problem go away. I think uh, an, an acknowledgement of the size and scale of the problem, and and I think, I think perhaps. Um, the de-escalation that you, you mentioned and those kind of discussions with other countries are worth having. Uh, and if we can arrive at some kind of global uh, Geneva Convention in terms of what can and cannot be done in cyberspace, I think I think we shouldn't give up on that. But I definitely think we shouldn't we shouldn't rely upon that as a as, as an outcome that you know will eventually arrive as some kind of inevitability. I think we're going to have to work very hard. To, to realize that. And I think we should be fairly realistic in, in our ambitions as to what it, what is achievable from a, a legal framework perspective. And just finally, what role does the industry play in this? Because clearly there needs to be direction from government, but the implementation of that may largely depend on the private sector, uh, not just to develop the tools and technologies, but also uh, for private sector companies to actually harden their own infrastructure so that they're more resilient so i think for, for industry themselves you know who are should we say people who are doing non-cyber related stuff you know manufacturing cars or, or you know anything then uh, you know they have got to take this seriously and i and i think m- most most companies now do understand this and and are taking steps to to address the threat but i think government has to lead the debate and the initiatives to bring the cybersecurity industry to a better place, which governments don't historically like to do. They don't like to interfere in in markets or to feel that it is their responsibility to corral industries in the the interests of the national good in anything other than a wartime scenario. Uh, But I think think governments need to realise that whilst this isn't a wartime scenario, in cyberspace, um, it pretty much feels like that, and and, and a greater acceptance that, that government should do more would would not be a bad place to start. David Carroll of Nominet Cyber on the risks that an accident in cyberspace could turn into an incident that upsets the delicate balance of control in the online world, and on the need for government to work with industry to bolster security and to stop that happening. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. Our next episode is on Tuesday, May the 18th, when we'll take a more in-depth look at protecting critical national infrastructure and we'll learn how to hack a power station. I do hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, 
And of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.